So welcome back to Two Threes in a Pod. Uh, we are in Season 4, Episode 5. And uh, today we are joined by Myrna McCallum. And uh, we're really excited to have Myrna join us for a lot of different reasons. And, and, and before uh, we invite Myrna to introduce herself, um, we're excited to be back. And uh, we had a bit of a break. Uh, Terry and I took some, some time off during the summer uh, for some rest and relaxation. And, uh, and we're really excited to be back. And we're excited to be back with Myrna. Um, I've been following Myrna. I know Terry has also been following Myrna on uh, her social media. Um, and uh, she has a IG page called uh, the Trauma-Informed Lawyer. And I remember seeing um, Myrna's page and getting immediately uh, drawn in to the content uh, that Myrna was posting and the things that Myrna was speaking about. And, uh, and I think it's fitting that we come back in this way with Myrna uh, because we have a lot to unpack. We have a lot to figure out, folks, and, and we, um, we're in the midst of some pretty big shifts happening uh, across our communities and uh, a lot of heightened awareness across Canada. And, uh, and so I think that it's a good time uh, for us to, to re, um, re-engage in some good conversations. So Myrna, um, please introduce yourself for our listeners and, uh, and then we'll get on with some, uh, what I know will be exciting conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Amber, for the introduction. Thank you both for inviting me to be on your awesome podcast, which I listen to and I'm a huge fan of, so mm-hmm. I'm really excited to be here. Um, what can I say? First off, I'm zooming in, having this conversation with you from the traditional unceded and ancestral territories of the Squamish people, this larger territory, a shared territory between the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam people. Um, I love living on the West Coast. However, I am um, Métis and Cree from Treaty 6 Territory. My home community is Green Lake. Uh, which is a historical Métis village, and then, uh, but I'm registered at the nearby Waterham Lake First Nation, where my uh, my cookum was from, and so um, my roots are definitely northern Saskatchewan, and uh, I like to call myself the Cree by the Sea. So, <laughs> but there's a Cree behind every tree here on the West Coast, anyway. Um, I um, yeah, I'm I'm really honored to have a conversation with the two of you today about. Um, the, the, the work we, I think we have a common purpose in terms of, you know, talking about trauma and also hoping for healing in the professions that we come from. So I'm a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for almost 15 years and, um, I learned a lot about trauma, not in law school, but like in the courtroom and working with, um, my own people, our own people. And so, um, the education they gave me is the education that I uh, transmit through my podcast, the Trauma Informed Lawyer, and through training sessions. And mm-hmm. anytime anyone asks me to speak, um, I always uh, recognize where these teachings came from. Nice. Thank you. Thank you, Myrna. And so uh, I, I have a I have a question, and, and we had a conversation. Uh, previous to to our uh, recording today, and and I think that in one of the conver- or, sorry in the conversation that we had, one of the things we talked about was how trauma informed work belongs everywhere, 
and that uh, typically from from my experience as a social worker that the the onus of responsibility of knowing about trauma-informed work or about trauma has typically been a social worker's role there's been this shift of responsibility to oh go talk to the social worker about that whether that be in the legal field medical field you name it that there's been this expectation that the social worker is the all-knowing of trauma and what to do and what i love about what you do is that there is no longer this responsibility just on folks who come from psych backgrounds or or uh, social backgrounds uh, or any other um helping profession, which I would say lawyers do, um, is, is that there's this, there's this responsibility that you've taken. And, uh, and like you said, didn't learn in law school, uh, but took on the responsibility afterwards. Once you completed your, uh, I'm making an assumption it was after you completed, uh, your, your schooling. And so tell us a bit about what, um, you know, when you, when you reflect back on, the needing to know or the desire to know or whatever it might have been, um, you know, what did you, what did you feel like you needed to start uncovering? What are those pieces around understanding trauma in relation to law that you really started to uncover and unpack for yourself? That's a good question. Um, so I mean, I'll give you a little bit of a background and trigger warning. I'm going to talk about sexual abuse um, and I'm going to talk about sexual abuse perpetrated against children. So, you know, I, one of the reasons I went to law school, like a lot of my friends and colleagues were all becoming social workers or they were becoming teachers or psychologists. And I was like, fuck, no, I don't want to hang out with people who are crying. I don't want to deal with like emotions. Why? Because I was like, you know, I came from a really violent household. I grew up in tremendous violence. And uh, from there, I was in and out of foster care. Then I ended up in residential school. Uh, I went to Labrette Indian Residential School when I was 11 years old. And I ran away. Um, I ran away after that year. I left my brother there who was um, who ended up being in that school and in St. Mike's at Duck Lake for seven years. And so um, in running away and being pretty much on my own after that, I was just so incredibly traumatized from my childhood that I never wanted to be in touch with anyone's humanity. I didn't want anyone crying around me because my fear was that that might wake up the trauma inside me and I'd have to get in touch with that. And I did not want that at all. And so. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do. And, you know, anytime I saw lawyers on TV, and I always saw them on TV because there were no lawyers in my community, right? We were all either on the trap line or we were fishing or we were farming or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one ever said, oh, go to law school. No one ever said go to school. Anyway, <laughs> um, when I looked at lawyers, they all looked like a bunch of assholes, a bunch of jerks, like completely disconnected dehumanizing, um, dissociated. And I was like, that's the career for me. That's where I want to be. And so, (laughs) honest to God, that was like, I was like, this is my calling. And then I go there. And of course, I'm motivated to help my people, right? I want to work for Indigenous people. Never thought about um, the trauma that they would bring to my door, like, professionally speaking. And, um, 
after I graduated from UBC Law School and I worked in Aboriginal rights and title down here in Vancouver, I really got sick of it right away because I wanted to be in a, in a courtroom and I knew uh, criminal law was probably the thing that would, you know, um, help me overcome my fear of public speaking and allow me to actually be immersed in Indigenous communities. So someone had said, why don't you come home, Myrna? We need lawyers up here. So I went home. I went to Green Lake and then I started working at the Meadow Lake office as a legal aid lawyer. Not long after that, I left there and became a Crown Prosecutor. And so it was really my time as a Crown Prosecutor that I, of course, every day, like flying into remote communities, I was all like had a front row seat to mm -hmm. domestic violence, sexual violence, homicide all of these like traumatic things um and what i wasn't prepared for and because i never thought of it was how all of that work was going to be a trigger of my childhood mm -hmm. every time I, I saw a woman walk in and her face was like unrecognizable when i had to look at images uh of things i'd experienced right and so uh i was like oh i need to get out of here and I was really unhappy actually with um, my job after a time because Stephen Harper introduced this omnibus crime bill which essentially tied the judges hands uh, and we had to like send people to jail for offenses they should never go to jail for so I, my job lost meaning because I couldn't work collaboratively collaboratively with the court to keep people in their communities mm. and keep them out of prison and so I don't know why I thought uh, becoming an adjudicator in the Indian residential school claim process was going to be a better experience for me. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. And I did that for, you know, I was in the tribunal doing that work for six years. Uh, I traveled all over the country, listened to survivors, old ones, young ones, in between, healed ones, still in the throes of the trauma ones. and. Um, it's in that work uh, that I became spiritually and mentally and emotionally broken because I had, as much as I knew about our people by lived experience and by education, because I have a Native Studies degree before I got my law degree, I had no idea. I had no idea what we have survived. and. I had no idea why we turned to self-harm and addictions. And up to that point, I was quite judgmental. I mean, because my mom had been an alcoholic and, and had been a victim of domestic violence. And I used to judge her, like, tremendously. And so I started to see patterns. And I started to see just how extreme the violence was in the residential schools like i say sexual abuse doesn't even touch it like we're talking uh -huh. about sexual torture of children someone's young as three uh -huh. and so um like this country doesn't even know i it's i feel like i still continue to carry the stories of hundreds of survivors that this country will never ever hear huh. and so um but yeah, that work completely devastated me. And it was probably halfway through that I had to confront my own residential school experience. And I had to confront what I lost in terms of what has happened to my brother as a result of his seven years in, in those places. And um, I nearly didn't survive. Um, mm -hmm. I nearly didn't survive. And so uh, 
but for uh, a wonderful social worker counselor who ended up coming into my life and I went into intensive therapy with her, like intensive therapy, had to take a year off work and um, burn through all my savings and my credit cards. I didn't know that I was even going to come back to the, to the practice of law or ever be able to work again. And so I did. And now this is what I talk about because nobody ever tells lawyers um, about the impact that the traumas of others are going to have on our own mental health and our own spiritual well-being. And I think it's such a significant gap in legal education um, because it, it does not serve us well to train us to see people as legal issues only. It does not serve anyone to to train us to be transactional. And so, um, in fact, it, it can be devastating. And of course, and we know from um, Indigenous case law that makes the news all the time, Cindy Gladue, for example, in yes. Alberta, that when we treat people and their um, uh, experiences, including the experiences of the family members, um, in this in this way, this detached kind of transactional way, we then dehumanize their experience when they come into contact with our legal process. You know, case in point, Cindy Gladshu, case in point, um, the Bushi family from mm -hmm. Saskatchewan, right? And so there's a lot more. There's a, a, so many more names. And so we need to do better. So I'm on this quest to um, wake people up and say, uh, and, and get them to understand we have a duty to do better. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. <clears throat> I have um and and you mentioned a, a little bit about <clears throat> how you went into intense therapy and I'm just wondering um because we we've heard from you know we have our own family and and other friends who have experienced this as well and so how did you take care of yourself like what are the what are the, some of the things um that helped you in your healing journey in coming back and being lifted back from that? Well, I can tell you it hasn't been easy, Terry. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been easy because um, I don't come from a place of where, where uh, self-care is promoted, <laughs> right? To care for yourself was usually met with violence. And so it's, I'm still learning. I'm still not sure that I've got it down. I'm more um, focused and trying to practice collective care because that's something that really resonates how do we take care of each other right what do i need uh from my best friend to take care of me like he's probably the closest person to me in my life aside from my children and he knows how to take care of me and so um uh, when i can't take care of myself which is too often so he'll call me in the morning hey did you go and take a hike like are you you're taking a hike today right i'm calling you at three o'clock you better tell me that you've been in the forest or whatever it is, are you getting out? Are you doing these things? Because I have this tendency to become quite reclusive and isolated um, because I'm quite, you know, um, introverted. So it comes naturally. And so um, he keeps me accountable. But in addition to that, I'm learning all of these things around like meditation, about going to the water. There was a Musqueam elder. He's long gone. His name was Simulano. And before he passed away 27 years ago, he had said, to me um 
you know, whenever like the world gets too heavy or whatever it is, or you've been in the presence of heaviness and trauma, go to the water, put your hands in the water and remember that the water is a healer. And if you ask it to help you, it will. And so he's, he's taught me how to make offerings to it, how, how to, um, reach out at least to these living things like the forest and the water. And that's usually who, or that's, those are the living things I reach out to. And so, um, it's an F like a never ending, I think, quest to learn self care. But I think every day I continue to make decisions that are for my greater good, whether it's taking time off of work, or it's uh, choosing to eat a healthy meal or making sure that I'm drinking water and making sure I go into the forest um, at least a few times a week or get on my rower or whatever it is, check in with a friend. Um, it's something that I have to, um, I, I have to practice it even when I don't want to because if I wait for when I want to, those things may never happen. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Yeah. I appreciate that. I think that's uh, really valuable information. Uh, and I like how you used uh, the term community or communal, communal care. And uh, it was a couple years ago, because one of the things that we talk about in social work often is self-care. And I think students get tired of it in their first, uh, in their diploma program in their first year. We are constantly uh, talking about self-care, self-care. And while it's extremely important, um, there has been some social workers who have come out with some uh, research years ago about community care and, and how we need to make sure that our community is, is uh, taking, care, taking care of us and we take care of them, this, re this reciprocal relationship with our community. And whether your community is your, you know, your neighborhood or your friends group or you know, whatever community you belong to. And, uh, and it's interesting because I remember you, you spoke about water too and, and I had this conversation with uh, a friend of mine probably about eight or so years ago and one of the questions or one of the thoughts, uh, this person's also a, a practicing lawyer and one of the things that we were talking about was about um, the safety in our communities or the health of our communities I should say and one of the things that this person said was go and look at the health of your water. And if the health of your water is not well, if, if your water is not well, then your women won't be well. And if your women aren't well, then your community won't be well. And it was a, it was a really interesting, um, and a bit, well, a very profound um, thought for me because I think about the conditions of our waters, uh, especially near our First Nations communities and typically our waters are, are not well. And, uh, and at no fault of their own. And so I think that that's a really interesting, you just made me think about that, about the health of our waters and, and you know, going to put your hands in the water and how we need to ensure that we are taking care of our water because it will take care of us as well. And so I really appreciate that, Myrna. The other thing that I was thinking about, again, was that community care. And so how are we ensuring that, like, you know, when you were speaking, I thought of Terry. Terry's my person. Uh, that, you know, if, if I don't have, if I'm out of whack, uh, and things are happening in my life, Terry's my person, you know, that will check up on me and say, hey, how's it going? Uh, how are you feeling today? You know, blah, blah, blah. She'll bring me gifts. She'll bring me chocolates and, and not necessarily healthy things, but that's okay. <laughs> that's just what me and Terry do. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, there's, there's folks in our lives um, who, who are our community. I think about the folks who don't have a Terry or the folks who don't have what you have, Myrna, with your best friend. And, and I think about how uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, spaces, like you said, when you've gone into some of our maybe more remote or isolated, that we even need to be remote or isolated uh, communities where maybe we don't have those people. And, uh, and so I really encourage folks who are out there who may not have a Terry or a Myrna's best friend um, that, you know, listening to podcasts, and, you know, this isn't a shameless plug about ours, uh, you know, listen to Myrna's podcast. Uh, find uh, voices that you can be connected to. And that they, when I hear podcasts or when I hear other people speak, I, I feel like they're talking to me at many times, right? And so listen to podcasts, listen to other people's voices, and, uh, and you may find a friend in that as well. And so it's just an encouragement about community care that oftentimes we can find community care in some of the most um, uh, some of the places you wouldn't expect also in the forest. It, that's community care, being with the trees, being with the water, that's community care. So thank you for that reminder, Myrna. Yeah, absolutely. I was, um, <clears throat> and so just to, just to give you a little bit of background. So we lost, um, somebody really close to us on Sunday and we just, she was, um, uh, a knowledge keeper, a first full-time knowledge keeper at the university, uh, and such a gift, such a gift to our community, um, and and just was just known everywhere. It's just for her beauty, and I think that one of the things you know, in in my own in my own sitting in this all week, and and um, I made a joke. I made a joke because I had to organize her celebration of life in one day <laughs> and I was like you know and and you're working with university and and folks event services and all these things and I'm like man you know typically we could plan events fairly quickly within like days weeks a month right and 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 oftentimes in our institutions we need months and months right and I'm like because we're groomed that way like with funerals within our communities we are literally, you know, we come together so quickly. We, we just, we gather, we make decisions very quickly just in this time of like grief and loss. And like even today, so today, even after our recording, um, I'm asking my team just to come together. You know, yesterday was a, you know, take a break kind of day where, you know, nobody needed to come into the office. You know, I stayed in bed all day yesterday um, and just kind of just disconnected from technology uh, and from people. And I, I, I rarely isolate. And I think Amber was texting me throughout the day and I was not responding to her. And that's never happened. And she, I think she was panicking a bit because, <laughs> you know, by I think like three o'clock, she's like, you need to just tell me you are safe. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm safe. I'm in bed. I'm fine. Um, but just had to have you know that that silence and that time and you know coming together today with our team and just again that collective care right 
bringing us together and 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 sitting together and i know that even through you know we've talked about this previously through covid when we especially when we've been in lockdown and we've lost family right and people haven't been able to gather um you know i'm thankful today that you know when we heard the news about aroxy that we you know i had students showing up at my house um and sitting you know sitting on my deck and we would just sit and drink tea you know till the early morning and i think that you know i'm so thankful for that but the the importance of that collective care um that you mentioned is so important how we take care of one another yeah it really is i mean i'm not i don't know a lot about your profession but i know for mine it's quite um it's very like individualistic and oftentimes when folks come into firms or they come into a legal organization one of the things that you're told when you're onboarding is you know um, you know, if ever you or your family members need help, there's this EFAP program, there's lawyer's assistance program, there's like all this like mental health support for you. And then they kind of leave you to your own devices mm-hmm. to decide to reach out for that. And um, and a couple things. One, stigma, mental health is so stigmatized, particularly in my profession, people don't talk about what's going on. So, uh, but you see it. You see it when... Um, you observe how much your colleagues are drinking or uh, they have alcohol on their breath sometimes when they come to work or there are other things happening it could be gambling it could be you know family breakdown because of like bad behavior um it could be uh their humor becomes dark or uh they just don't even smile anymore they don't talk to anyone they completely isolate um having panic attacks and depression and you see you see the the impacts but people are uh dismissive or don't just don't even want to talk about it and so um you know what i have experienced is that like i didn't know that i was drowning until i was pretty well fully submerged you know Mm -hmm. and because i was left to my own devices as well um i didn't even know what was happening to me was actually, um, you know, these mental health impacts from the exposure to the violence that I was seeing and reading about all the mm-hmm. time. And um, sometimes, you know, we don't know what we don't know. Mm-hmm. So if you can't make the connection to the fact that you're you're having insomnia or you constantly have headaches, you're having panic attacks in the middle of mm-hmm. the night straight out of a dead sleep, uh, these are all things that are trying to get your attention but nobody talks about that because my profession stigmatizes mental health issues so terribly and you know i talk with judges now and lawyers and i'm saying look we need to recognize two things one we have an onus and a duty to care for each other so instead of leaving people to their own devices let's just check in we don't need to be a mental health expert to say hey how are you coping Mm -hmm. you know just to get people to reflect on, wait a second, how am I coping? Um, And then the other piece is to normalize these conversations to the extent that we acknowledge that we are not impervious to human suffering. We are not these automatons who sit on a bench in the courtroom or or try these cases and Mm -hmm. they don't impact 
they absolutely do. So let's talk about that. That's facts. It's impacting us. So how are we how are we dealing with that? And let's deal with it together instead of in isolation where we're terrified of what people might think about our competency or our reputation or whatever that like egotistical it's so surface, right? Like yeah. So I find it really um, it's pa- like this message is powerful and I know it is because I have individual uh, professionals sending me messages to say, oh, I just heard this on your podcast and thank you for saying that. Or, can, we, can we talk about it? And even though I'm not a mental health expert, I'll be like, well, yeah, like I can listen, right? And, you know, that makes you make a very clear point because that happened this morning. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I got a call, an email, and basically was like, we're going to send you a brochure of um, the supports that you can reach out to. Um, and and I took it and I emailed it out to our staff. But, you know, we know and I know that, you know, once I would never call. <laughs> I And I personally wouldn't. Our, our other t- I can't speak for my team, but... For me, it's again, like, what are we, what, what action are we actually doing? And what are we doing in, in creating that environment and that space um, in our workspace, regardless of wherever we are, um, whether that's in education. And, and I think that um, it's so important. It's so important that we think about that differently. Um, as leaders, as, as administrators, as people working within HR, is is how are we, um, how are we connecting um, differently and providing support differently? Mm-hmm. And you know, and, and one of the things that you, you brought up, Myrna, was around one of the very the most um, profound yet simple uh, practices in trauma informed work is the validation of other people's, uh, what they're feeling. And, and, you know, like you said, just that question of, um, how are you doing? You know, how has this impacted you? Um, and allowing folks to think about that and they may not have the answer to it immediately, but they, it, it, there's a space that has automatically been created when you ask someone, how is this impacting you? And, uh, and that is again, one of the most simple and profound, um, practices in trauma-informed work is just creating the space because oftentimes we go through our days uh, and I, I tell my students this all the time I say you know when you're out in public and you go to a, um, a grocery store for example and one of the first questions that you are asked by you know the friendly clerk uh, or, or that you ask them is how are you doing today you know, and it's one of the questions that we ask publicly quite often. Um, I said, but how many of us have, you know, the uh, the ability or the desire in that moment to say, you know what, this is my last $10. I'm not doing well today. You know, or if the clerk says, I've been on my feet since I have two jobs and, you know, and I've been on my feet for 24 hours, I'm not doing well today, right? But our often our public response is very much, I'm fine, I'm good, you know, uh, when your life could be in shambles. And so I think that there is uh, some pieces around that public response because it is societal. It's a, there's a, there's a, a expectation uh, that we are to be well in public, um, which I think is also problematic. 
because oftentimes when we're in public spaces uh, and we cry and we apologize for crying and we apologize for sharing emotion, uh, that that is about protecting other people. And so I really appreciate, you know, uh, how you have um, merged or that you have, because, and, and maybe merge isn't the right it, it's it's a it's a reclaiming of trauma work in legal work, right? Yeah. And we know this is true from the stories we've heard from folks like Andre Bear, uh, who uh, talk about um, you know the work in law. And if we look at our old restorative practices that our people have always done, uh, I believe those were done in, in a trauma informed uh, manner. And and I don't know, Marna, if you have more thoughts about that about restorative practice and and how that trauma work was part of that or yeah yeah I don't know about restorative practice like I'm definitely not a restorative justice uh, um, expert I don't come from that place um I do know a couple things however um in my experience particularly um and specifically having uh prosecuted either sexual assaults or acts of other acts of violence Oftentimes what people are looking for is a, um, they're not looking for punitive outcomes. Like they don't want to send people to prison. They don't want to ruin somebody's life. They want to be made whole again. They want to, or they want the relationship to be repaired to the extent that it can be. Um, because maybe they come from small communities. Sometimes they come from um, the, within the same family. And they want to be made whole again. Or they want um, their sense of safety and well-being returned to them. And you're not going to get that in a courtroom through a litigation process. And so I do think, yeah, definitely restorative processes have value for those who are seeking that. Um, and talking and focusing about the harm done. And the healing that um, needs to be um, um, initiated by the person who did the harm, right? And mm-hmm. taking accountability. And they, they also want accountability, right? Victims or complainants or survivors, they want accountability. Yes. Um, and so you don't necessarily get that in a criminal courtroom. I mean, I, I found it really, um, there's a judge I really hope I get on my podcast one day. His name is... Alexander Wolf. He is, I think he's New Chalmuth, I'm not sure, uh, but he sits, I think, in Victoria on the island. And he, um, I would say he is like leading the pack in terms of trauma informed decision making or trauma informed judicial practice. Mm. He had, uh, there's a case that, that he presided over not that long ago. It was a young woman, I believe she'd been gang raped. And when I say young, I mean, she's probably a teenager, very young, um, indigenous girl. And um, he had said in his um, his um, decision, he had to acquit because the evidence just didn't meet the threshold for a conviction. So he had to acquit. But one of the things that he said in his acquittal is, look, he said to the accused, do not confuse um, this uh, finding of not guilty with um, with you being uh, found innocent because I don't think you are innocent. I think you had a duty to protect this child, this young person, and I don't 
thank you fulfilled that duty and he was also i would say in his writing talking to that young girl to say our system is flawed this is the threshold to make a finding of sexual assault and the evidence didn't meet that but i believe that what you say happened happened to you and we don't often hear judges say that kind of thing mm. and um and i think he brings that level of insight and that critical lens because he's an indigenous man and because he knows the rate and the circumstances that um, permit the victimization of young indigenous women and girls mm -hmm. across this country, right? Um, and he also knows the hopelessness and mm -hmm. the skepticism that young indigenous, well, indigenous women and girls um, have about the justice system, right? And so I just, yeah, I respect him profoundly. Mm -hmm. I hope he comes on my podcast one day to talk to me about it, but yeah, so he, you know, I think in his own way, he's trying to find a way to bring some healing, some accountability, some um, rest restorative um, impact, even when there is no conviction, right? He's bringing that Indigenous lens and knowledge, and he's doing profound work, so. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And back to you, I want to say, um, Amber, about your point with respect to the whole how are you. So when I deliver training to people, I always say how are you is such a conversation killer. Because how are you, it's like, I'm fine. Okay, bye. Right? Like, that's how we do it, right? And I often say if you're truly interested and if you have capacity, you should make sure you have capacity before mm -hmm. you ask this question. You can say how are you coping? And if not, how are you coping? Um something along the lines of how are you sleeping right because why why did I think like this this isn't this didn't just come to me out of nowhere but I was training some people and um they were uh union members and there had been a shooting in a workplace some time ago here in British Columbia somebody had died and um they brought in like the the crisis counselors, right, to see how the employees were doing. And um, so one of the participants in my training said, you know, every day the crisis counselor came in and they'd say, you know, how are you doing? How are you doing? I'd be like, fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. You know, I can come to work. Um, and then somebody else came along and said, okay, but how are you sleeping? Are you having headaches? So actually starting to pinpoint what those impacts are, right? And um, it was only then that he made the connection between um, what had what he had witnessed and what he is now experiencing. Mm -hmm. And that led to, of course, a diagnosis of PTSD. Um, and then some kind of healing, recovery therapy that has helped him through. But I think without asking those critical questions of each other, like, how are you sleeping? Are you having intrusive thoughts? Like, what? Are you having headaches? How are you feeling about this work? Do you have the capacity to take more work? And um, I think we have to have those critical conversations. And I often ask law firms to create space for debriefing, to talk about what is vicarious trauma and is vicarious trauma an occupational hazard that we need to be talking about more often right because like we can only look at so many um, autopsy photos and listen to so many recordings of somebody being assaulted right yeah and and so uh, tell us uh, how our listeners how they can um, you know access the training do you have a website uh, for your training Myrna um, 
like coming soon for like a year. Um, <laughs> I I just I can't get on top of anything. Um, no, but what the, I'm easy to find. I'm easy to find on LinkedIn, um, Instagram, the Trauma Informed Lawyer, and um, I do training right now for. Uh, well, it was supposed to be for lawyers, but it's not just lawyers now who come to me. It's educators, it's doctors, it's uh, teachers, it's police, it's administrators, it's union reps, it's tribunal heads. It's like a mm-hmm. whole bunch of people. And so uh, what began as a one-hour lunch and learn conversation has now become like two-hour sessions, three-hour sessions, four-hour sessions where I talk about trauma-informed um, advocacy or trauma-informed representation. So from the from the perspective of someone who has to be objective and impartial and a decision-maker, not someone who provides care because right. I've never done that and I don't know about that. And so... Uh, and then I talk about cultural humility, which is really important. Um, and so, yeah, I deliver those in like two, three, and four-hour um, sessions. And I'm in the process of creating actually a four-day course on trauma-informed lawyering, awesome. which I'm going to deliver over Zoom to the entire world. So we'll Amazing. see how we'll see how uh, how that unfolds. But it's pretty exciting. Mm. That is exciting and so needed. So needed. So People as, all over the world ask me, Amber, they're like, when are you doing this? When are you doing this? Because who? I started this podcast thinking, I'll do five episodes, maybe a few lawyers here, BC Elicited. <laughs> there are people all over the world. I get, like, communications from Paris and South mm-hmm. Africa and Egypt. It's, who knew? Amazing. Yeah. And, and check out Myrna's podcast, uh, please. The Trauma-Informed Lawyer Podcast. Uh, it's it's uh it's amazing and and so how you know some of the conversations that we're having here it's it's so much more broad and so please check out uh if you want a good podcast to listen to please check out Myrna's podcast as well so as we are wrapping up I just wanted to give you the opportunity Myrna to um to share with our listeners any uh closing comments or anything that you feel that they need to hear today um, I think, well, thank you for the opportunity. I would say maybe two things. One is, if you've ever had to um, encounter lawyers or the legal system, I apologize. Um, but just know, we're all working on doing better. And I hope one day, we will see a trauma-informed courtroom. Mm-hmm. And that is one of my, um, my goals. I mean, I, I would love to see that happen for us um, in this country and uh, and trauma-informed judges sitting in these courtrooms right across the country, particularly in the prairies where there's a lot of people who are quite vulnerable, uh, Indigenous people. Um, The other is if you don't have uh, Terry and an Amber in your life, or in my case, my best friend Shane, um, remember that nature is there for you the trees and the water and the wind and you know uh, I'm heavily committed to my spirituality and so it has never failed me and I have witnessed many many miracles when I thought there was no hope um, I found it or Mm -hmm. it found me and so you know let's never let's never give up on ourselves or each other there's always better days ahead I believe it so Mm -hmm. thank you hi hi girls 
Thank you, Myrna, for joining us on Two Crees in a Pod.